If you look hard enough past the flashing lights and billboard signs, past the busy streets and suburban houses, you might find a little truth hidden inside a great song. To the bedroom music makers and garage wall shakers, to the cafe singers and travelling bands, to the street buskers and vinyl crate diggers, to big city dreams and small town life. This is Between the Houses. Hey everyone, this is Sam and I'm here with Dave and we play in a band called The Paper Kites and welcome to Between the Houses. Dave, how you doing? Really good, man. Just uh, been hanging out at home, doing uh, some gardening today, which is very satisfying. Ah, very nice. It's good for the soul, they say. Yes. So, welcome to our podcast. Um, what we're doing at the moment is we're talking to the artists that we've collaborated with uh, on this upcoming album that we're about to release called Roses, uh, featuring 10 amazing vocalists that we've worked with. So, each episode so far has been us talking to some of them. Um, but we're not going to talk too long in this intro because it's a bit of a longer interview today. So, uh, we're just going to get into it. But next week, we are getting the band together. I was going to say back together, but <laughs> we never really uh, never parted. May as well. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen each other for a long time. <laughs> um, getting the band together and we're doing the episode where we're going to answer all of the questions that you guys have submitted. So, that's happening next week. I can scream, I can fight, I can read and I can write. Today we're talking to Julia Stone. Uh, most people would probably know her as one half of Angus and Julia Stone. Hugely successful band, not just in Australia, but around the world. Numerous ARIA Awards, APRA Awards. Um, and they were and, and still are very much uh, important figures in, I think, the folk revival that was happening around Australia in the late 2000s. And as well as her work with her brother, she's released two solo albums and is about to release her third. So we recently recorded a song with Julia called Without Your Love, uh, which has just been released. So we talk a little bit about that in this chat as well. Yeah, and it was really special to have her on that song because uh, she's been a big influence of ours sort of since we started. And uh, yeah, it sort of felt like we'd kind of come full circle in a way. So you'll probably notice in the interview, we didn't really ask many questions about Angus uh, or about the music that they play together. For Angus and Julia fans, we really wanted to focus on Julia and her life, her experience uh, and her music. We would have loved to talk about, you know, working with Rick Rubin and all of that side of the Angus and Julia world. But yeah, this interview was for Julia and uh, her music. Yeah. And while we didn't talk about a lot of that stuff, um, we did have a very long conversation. I think we talked for just under four hours in yep. the end, which we uh, hadn't planned to do, but we're just very much enjoying each other's company and exchanging stories and experiences and just hearing about her life as well. So this is obviously a very edited version of that conversation. We couldn't fit it all in, but um, it was really great to talk to her. Yeah, it was a really great conversation and really interesting to hear about her life through her lens, not through the way you might see it or perceive it. Here's our chat with Julia Stone. I 
think I was raised in a pretty extroverted family, so it, I wouldn't say it was pushed upon us, but it was definitely like the environment was everybody, everybody was vivacious and loud, and that was that was how it was to kind of be heard. You had to really, you had to really sort of yell your story out. And, <laughs> um, and our parents were both performers. They, yeah, they loved performing, and so I, I guess it was like if you're the the daughter of a baker or the daughter of a farmer, you learn skills that your parents have. And those were about public speaking and performing and meeting people. And even when I was quite young, I remember thinking, oh, it doesn't make me feel very comfortable. But my parents would always say, you got to just keep doing it. You know, you just get up and it'll it'll feel better. And yeah, yeah, I guess it feels better now performing, but I still yeah. get terrified of public speaking. Yeah. Well, you were kind of talking about like the, the, the family life. Where did you actually grow up? I grew up most of the time on the northern beaches of Sydney. So there's an area called Pitwater and my parents, they met because they're both sailors. Really? And my dad, he had a yacht that he raced and he um, had a kerosene stove in that yacht and the kerosene leaked one day and the yacht blew up (laughs) so we have these amazing photos that dad took of his beautiful wooden boat burning and he put in the trading post parts that were left which was there was a lot of lead in the hull um that that was worth something and at the time my grandfather my my mum's father was building a boat and he called my dad and said I'd like to buy the lead and my dad turned up to do the exchange at, at my grandparents' house and my mum answered the door and and four weeks later they were engaged to be married. So, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, my dad was a quick a quick mover. Wow. Wow. I believe my mum was twenty at the time. Man, they weren't messing around back then. Yeah. No, they really got straight into it. And they, they both then went and worked as um uh what do you call them? People who deliver yachts on the Mediterranean. Whoa. So they traveled for a couple of years and and then they started having us kids and they always sailed. So when we were kids, we spent a lot of time on the water. Our grandparents had that boat that they had built called Terra Australis and they were very serious sailors. So they had a 60-foot yacht that they sailed from Whoa. Melbourne to Japan oh, every man. four years in the Melbourne to Osaka yacht race. And my parents had a smaller boat, but they were still pretty serious about it. They still competed and... My mum and dad were both skippers, but they had to find their way around navigating who was going to be the skipper. (laughs) Man, I didn't realise you had such a nautical family. It's a very nautical family, yes. So you've been on that yacht that your grandfather built with the lead from your dad's boat? Yes. Wow. That's cool. What a story. Yeah, it's a beautiful boat. They sold it probably about 15 years ago. Um, If anyone who is listening to this owns a boat, I mean, it's just... Upkeep of a boat is very serious. Mm. You've got to pull it out of the water every year and strip it of the barnacles. And a lot of the early childhood on the on Pitwater was memories are the smells of all of those things that you get mm. at a shipyard. Yeah. We've established your family is um, already quite skilled uh, on the sea, mm. but you're also saying your parents are like performers as well. Mm. So they're really musical or just a bit musical? I guess their first love was sailing, but they... Um, they also love music. My dad is kind of probably right down the middle, sailing and music. Yeah, loves okay. them both. And dad, when I was born, was already a part of a band called Backbeat. It's a great name. Yeah, it's a, I guess, a Beatles reference. And um, dad grew up through the 70s and late 60s sort of playing 
original rock around Sydney as well as competitively sailing. That was his two passions. And he at one point got a record deal with a independent label. I think in the 70s, indies were like proper indie. Yeah. And the label went bankrupt and the deal fell over. And oh. But, you know, dad's, dad's always had this dream of performing and he does it, you know. I mean, he's one of those guys that his dream is performing and he performs not obviously at the moment but always is performing Every weekend at a wedding or a party. Yeah, right. Or- yeah. So he doesn't talk about it like, you know, what could have been with that label. Like he's still kind of. No, no. I, I don't think he could have wished for a better life, my dad. Yeah. He's one of those kind of eternal optimists. He's just, he calls me after every gig to tell me how great the gig was, <laughs> you know, how um, how amazing it was. Just people were just screaming for more, you know. <laughs> and I go, that's great, you know. And he's like, yeah, far out. They're just, they'll definitely get us back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really hoping my dad doesn't listen to this nah, podcast because <laughs> this, this is the best promotion for him. Exactly, book backbeat if you're in Sydney. <laughs> Man, so what did your mum do? So mum left high school and then went to university to study marine biology. So she uh, finished her honours in marine biology and then worked in a lab for the first, I guess, probably the first four or five years of my life. Mm-hmm. Then mum, mum was, you know, she, um, she always secretly, I guess sort of secretly sort of not wanted to be an actress. So when we were young kids, she put us into acting classes and the acting classes were to build our confidence and, you know, just get us socialized as, as young little whippersnappers. And at the age of, I think five and a half, my acting teacher, started a casting agency and it was called Ankle Biters and she <laughs> she asked my mom if me and my sister Catherine and my brother Angus would would be in the casting agency and put us up for jobs and so my mom she was doing her work in marine biology but she was also on every second day sort of driving us to castings in the city so that was sort of our first experience of acting I got my first role in a country practice at the age of six (laughs) a classic show (laughs) that's huge I've actually tried to find the episodes I was in I I was in four episodes and then my character died Um, spoiler alert if you're going to revisit a country <laughs> practice. <laughs> How did your character die? It was pretty brutal, to be honest. Um, my character, Kylie, she lived on a cattle farm with her parents and she, <laughs> one day, I'm up on the fence around the cattle yard and my dad's rounding up the cattle and I'm up on one leg <laughs> and then the music, you know, do, 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 and I fall into the uh, cows oh. who then trample me to death. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Oh, it's tragic. Kylie meets a tragic end. <laughs> but um, no, yeah, my real life on the farm as a child, my grandparents who I told you went every five years into the in the Melbourne to Osaki yacht race, they also had a cattle farm and we would spend a lot of our weekends and school holidays up at the farm just near Bulladilla, north of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And my experience with the cows was very different. I felt very comfortable around the cows and I felt very confident. And so I used to actually feel like my favourite place to perform was with um, an audience of cows. (laughs) And you used to just stand on the the pen where they get fed, where the silo was, and you would make this noise, which I'm not going to do now, but my grandfather had 
trained the cows to hear this noise and that meant feeding time. And I would yell out like I was going to feed them and they'd all come from, you know, every corner of the property to come and get fed <laughs> and they'd all stand there. And I used to go, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I will be performing for you. And they'd all just be standing, staring. I mean, they're so attentive because yeah, they, they, think, just stare. <laughs> they just stare. <laughs> they think food's coming and the poor things would just stand there and I would, and occasionally one of them would move. <laughs> and I'd go, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know. No, I can't play that song tonight. <laughs> Actually, no, that's not one of the hits, so that will not be in the set list. That's not on the set list. <laughs> I mean, it's probably fair to say, um, I suppose, with your music, that most people would know you uh, as, you know, one half of Angus and Julia Stone. But mm. I heard you mention earlier about your sister. Was it Catherine? Yes, Catherine. Yeah, so I wanted to know about the, the if there are any other siblings in the Stone family. Yeah, well, there, there are quite a few, actually. So my sister, Catherine, she's my um, older sister by a year and a half. And my dad and mum, they divorced when I was, I think, 15. And both mum and dad remarried and both of their partners had children. So wow. we kind of ended up with uh, seven stepbrothers and sisters. Nice. It's quite an extended family. Yeah. We got really lucky. We got a whole bunch of absolute legends added to the family. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. We hit the, the sibling and the step-parent lottery. So you said like your, your parents kind of split up when you were 15, which is, you know, arguably kind of a formative time of your teenage years. How did that work? Were you guys sort of back and forth in terms of where you were spending your time? Yeah, I mean, when mum and dad split, mum moved out and she lived like two streets away from dad in a rental property. And mum and dad decided they would have us for two weeks each. Mm -hmm. So they felt like that was the easiest way for us as teenagers to have a little bit of continuity in one place and then in the other place. Yeah, okay. Um, it sort of worked and it sort of didn't. I think both of our parents were incredibly strict with us prior to divorcing and I think that was really important and helpful because we grew up in, you know, it was um. It was a great area to grow up, but there was, you know, there was definitely a lot of drugs and a lot of recklessness happening. And then when they split, it was much easier to have freedom and they didn't have that united force mm -hmm. that they had before. And so we could say, I'm going to stay at dad's house. And because they weren't really talking, we could kind of manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And it, it started to yeah. become a lot looser on, on that front. And I, I think... No fault of theirs. I think they did their best, but we definitely took advantage of the of that time and probably to our well, definitely to my detriment at times. But yeah, the united front of two parents together in one house is quite formidable. Yeah, that was my that was my experience. <laughs> Whereas you can kind of pit them against each other if there are uh, you know if there's that separation. Yeah, and when they're at odds, I think it's you know it's easier for yeah. them to be a bit more malleable to kind of like oh well like dad was really cool like he let me do this thing and it's oh, I want to be a cool parent too because <laughs> they start to feel it's divorce and what that means for them. I realize now as an adult myself which I didn't obviously at the time understand, but it's really traumatic. They're losing each other mm. and they, even though it's the right decision, 
there's so much grieving going on. Mm. There's so much um, emotional instability. My mum was 20 when she met my dad. So she's actually really before that never dated anybody else. And yeah. it was a really challenging time for both of them. And I just think when people are vulnerable, there's you're a teenager and you're, you feel like you want to try all these things and do all these things. And so you do what you can to, to get what you want. And I think they really, they really did their best, yeah. but they definitely had a tough time. Yeah. What was, uh, what was school like for you in regards to your family's been different, but also just your own experience? I really liked school a lot. I mean, I had, because I think of my parents pushing me into acting and doing that from such a young age, I had a lot of confidence and I, I definitely got bullied, but I didn't really care. You know, I had this very strange experience of, well, they're idiots. You know, (laughs) if they don't think I'm cool, then that's their problem. And I spent a lot of time on my own and a lot of time hanging out with teachers and a lot of time hanging out with older kids. I was very lucky to find music because the school band was a real, um, it was a real safe place and I kind of had my people and they weren't necessarily people in my year group. And I was also starting to become really interested in songwriting and I had no ability to write chords or I played the trumpet. So I wrote a cappella lyrics and melodies um, in the spirit of, you know, pop music that I was influenced by at the time. So sort of 12, 13, I started writing songs and I just would like, oh, I'm going to sing it on the school assembly because it's really good. And, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That's so good. Good on you. I get up with no music, just a melody, and, you know, in front of a thousand kids just sing the line (laughs) of the song. And I just remember thinking like, oh, that went really well, you know, and people would make fun of me. (laughs) But I... But I didn't care. I just remember being like, yeah, I, I don't think they liked it, but it was actually a really good performance. Yeah, man, that is so good. And that that's, we have that in common. I also, the trumpet was my first instrument. Oh, was it? Yeah. And that was, I went through high school playing trumpet in big band and then also trying drums at the same time mm-hmm. until I, I just couldn't nail the wipeout drum solo. <laughs> so I went back to trumpet. Oh, that's devastating. What trumpet were you? Were you first, second, third? I don't even remember. So long ago. I remember. I was always second or third. I never was first trumpet. I just could never get high enough, you know? I was like, I had a nice tone, but I just could never get those high notes. Well, look at you now. Yeah, that's right. Look (laughs) at me now. I still can't play high. (laughs) So, you kind of like, you carried that confidence with you through school. Uh, I'm assuming you, you took school all the way to the end. Um, did you work after school or did you, did you go off and travel? I, um, I finished school and I, I did well at school cause I studied really hard and I, I wanted to get a good mark so I could get into university, but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to study at the time. The closest thing I had in my mind was that I wanted to do something in media. I mm-hmm. wanted to do maybe media and communications. There was a course at Bathurst that I was interested in. And the marks to get in were really, because it was a really popular course, it was um, it was really high. So I thought, okay, I'm going to really work hard so I have that as an option or any other career path. And was sitting there going, I have no idea where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I had fallen in love and I was completely obsessed with this guy I was just you know that was sort of the only thing that stood out to me as um, important in my life 
And it was just before the sort of enrollment for university closed that he broke up with me and I thought I'm not going to go to uni, I'm just going to hang out with him. He was in a band and he was really cool and I was just going to help him, you know, like realise his dreams. And I sort of had put aside a lot of things that I was interested in because of my obsession (laughs) and he did the right thing for sure by letting me go at 17 was when I finished high school. I'm sure you didn't think that in the moment. No, I was extremely devastated, but it also (laughs) pushed me to enroll for a course. I thought I got to go to university and I got to keep moving. And I had no idea what I was doing. I started going to uni and I just didn't care. I was extremely um, underwhelmed by the experience and I wasn't living on campus. So I wasn't really a part of uni life. It was so different to how involved I was at school. And then I sort of, I'd met another a fella who was half Chilean mm-hmm. and we started talking about maybe taking time off uni and yep. going to see his family in Chile and that turned into a decision to just backpack for a year. So we bought tickets to South America and decided we'd buy a car in Santiago and I enrolled in learning to speak Spanish and he spoke Spanish and we lived with his family in Santiago and I deferred uni never to return and I bought a guitar in Bolivia and I started to learn how to play guitar and write songs and honestly I was still writing about the heartbreak from my previous boyfriend it was still really strong in my experience and Mm -hmm. I really found that songwriting was started to be really healing and helpful and I also realized I was probably not with the right person as well so we split up about four months into our year backpacking trip on the the trip (laughs) on the trip it was horrible um it was a really cold thing that for me to do I didn't realize at the time I was too young and naive I just thought oh this is the right thing because it's um it doesn't feel right or whatever but I yeah sooner the better sort of yeah, yeah and I handled it really poorly and um we sort of had the same tickets around the world so we were sort of like following each other a month (laughs) out and it was pretty yeah it was horrible but I took my guitar and I went to hostels and asked people to teach me songs wherever I stopped and I started to learn to play and one of the hostels I stopped in I was in a room with a flamenco guitar player who taught me how to finger pick and that was the beginning of the style of guitar playing that I developed when I first started playing with Angus. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't from like listening to kind of like folk records or anything. It was it was on this trip that you kind of took that flamenco style and, and kind of applied it to your own songwriting. Yeah. Yeah. I would say this guy who I've never seen again, his name was Abel. He spent a lot of time showing me how to practice. I just... I'd sort of been a pretty lazy trumpet player. You know, I got away with being second and third trumpet. Like I said, I never really pushed myself to become first. <laughs> and and he was really like, you got to just sit on something for hours. And, and I would. I'd just sit it, you know, in the sun outside the hostel and practice and practice and practice. And mm. and I kept doing that until I got back to Australia. And, and then, yeah, moved in with Angus because I had no money and dad um, had met his wife-to-be and the house was semi-empty and that's when we sort of both realised we were writing songs and um, maybe we could help each other out. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's kind of where it all started for you guys, I guess. Mm. Um, Jules, I wanted to ask you if you remember 
our first meeting at all. You probably don't, but I remember it really well. So we were recording our first full-length album, I think it's Sing Sing, which is unfortunately not there anymore. I know, Uh, that's so sad, isn't it? It's a legendary studio in Melbourne. And um, we had heard that you were in the studio working on, I think, your second solo album. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of talking together, trying to work out how can we... How can we meet her? Because we're all obviously like big fans of your music. And, uh, you know, we. <laughs> I think there was talks about like, you know, just chance run-ins in, in the studio kitchen or something, <laughs> how we would orchestrate that. But it happened that we were playing table tennis as we like to do between takes. And, you know, you guys, the band just came out of the studio and I saw it all in slow motion. <laughs> I was like, they're just, they're so cool. There she is. <laughs> There's Julia Stone. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this, by the way. It's like, I, I mean, it's just so nice to be, for a moment, to be kind of through your eyes how you, you saw me in that moment because I've never felt like how you saw me. <laughs> no, no. You never But do. that's the thing. I mean, we've talked about this um, in the previous episodes about artists just being afraid of each other, mm-hmm. even though we shouldn't be. But in that moment, I just, I didn't know what to do. I, I just froze. Luckily, it ended up with you just jumping straight into the table tennis game. And before I knew it, I was playing against you. I don't even think I said anything to you. I just played the game absolutely stoked that I was just interacting with you. (laughs) And then uh, afterwards, I think you went back into the studio and I was just elated. Like I remember (laughs) saying to the guy, I can't believe that just happened. And someone took like a really shady photo (laughs) in the background. I've still got the photo. You've still got the photo? I do, yeah. I'll have to send it to you. Oh, can you please send that to me? That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'll send it over to you. Um, So I definitely want to talk about uh, this new song that we've recently recorded together. But firstly... I wanted to talk about how it came about because you were someone that we really wanted to get uh, on this record, but we weren't sure whether we'd be able to get you. And the only way in that we had was the fact that uh, you had texted Dave a little while ago asking if he wanted to play guitar for Angus and Julia Stone. That's right, Dave. Oh, my God. (laughs) I can't even believe I'm just realizing this right now. Like, I was... For ages trying to get you to come and play yeah. guitar with us. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sorry. The pieces are clocking together right in this moment. A lot of time and uh, events have transpired between then and now. So Yeah, yeah that's so true. But, you know, f- we've never, like, actually formally said hi in person. So it was that's like right. you were a name on an email chain, you know, like... And and I remember thinking, oh, this guy seems really nice via email and, and I'd heard so many good things about your playing and, you know, and it was just unfortunate that, I mean, it was fortunate, obviously, for you guys, you were, you know, getting busier and busier and that wasn't going to be an option for you to tour with us, with your band, but... um but yeah, I mean, that was the exchange. It was just, uh, we'd love to play music with you and you saying that you'd love to do it, but it wouldn't line up and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> we kept trying, didn't we? We kept like, I think there was a couple of other times maybe. Yeah, I I think maybe twice. Um, but I, I remember getting the initial text message out of the blue. Hey, I think you said, hey, Davey, <laughs> this is Julia Stone. <laughs> it's because Ben Edgar calls you Davey. Right. I, only, I, I got that from Ben Edgar. Everything, you know, if someone calls somebody their yeah. nickname, then I am just, that's yeah. the I'll name. Ju- I'll just reiterate that Ben Edgar is our mutual connection. So he played, has played with Angus and Julia. And uh, has he played with your solo stuff too, Julia? Yeah, yeah. Ben has, whenever we can get yeah. Ben, we get Ben. Yeah. And we obviously know Ben also from 
from playing in passengers band as well continue right well i'll continue by saying i was i was chuffed on two levels that it wasn't a hoax and it was you <laughs> um and so i was really flattered but also that that Benny had recommended me. I couldn't believe it's it. It's a very, it's a big compliment for someone like Ben to, to recommend your flag. <laughs> because he's, he runs a pretty tight ship on tour. So that was a, a big, uh, big compliment to me. And I was really sad that I couldn't, uh, couldn't commit to, wow, you guys playing so many dates all the time, but also the whole decision around uh, not being able to do it. Um, was actually quite a big revelation for me and my, kind of work-life balance and really had to do with my family because, yeah, our band had been touring a bunch already that year and, to be honest, just couldn't manage any more time away from them. Yeah, I mean, we've got to be one of the, like, I mean, not at the moment, obviously, but um, when Angus and I were touring, we just used to tour so much and, you know, we used to do, like, three-month runs with just five or six shows a week. It was pretty mental. We kind of... We don't do that anymore, but we definitely work hard on tour. So yep. it probably also looked extreme. Yeah. Would you take a, a great player with a terrible personality or a mediocre player with a great personality <laughs> to tour with? I mean, I probably wouldn't compromise. I'd probably find a really great player with a great personality. <laughs> I, I def, if I was, you know, gun to my head having to choose, I'd take the great personality and the mediocre musician. Yeah. Every time. You won't enjoy the great playing if the personality's terrible. Yeah, that's right. You know, you've got to be um, warm and generous. And I think often what makes a great musician is having the ability to, to listen and to be connective on stage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, we're so thankful that you agreed to sing on this track mm. and it's just turned out a dream. Yeah, you, you suited it so well and... I think the dream for this song has been realised mm. because of your vocal and uh, your unique character on the song. So thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. I love this song so much. And I said to Sam the other day, I was really busy at the time that you asked and I was saying no to a few things and I got the email and I was sort of like, oh, I probably shouldn't even listen to the song because I don't really have time and I'm working on this other project and... I think I might have even been doing the film at the time. But yeah, I was I always listen, you know, like of course as soon as I heard the song, it was like, okay, I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> it's such a beautiful song. That's such a such a nice compliment because you do like, you know, you do worry about especially when you're sending songs to um songwriters that you really admire, like I think you question your own uh, ability as a songwriter. So it's really nice to yeah, I suppose be be validated by that because I remember we did get not for this song but for some other songs we did get knocked back um, by a couple of artists that we were really hoping to get and I was sort of like oh man like maybe the songs just aren't good enough but then I remember when you said yes I was really like sort of reaffirmed I suppose that like the project was was worth sort of pushing forward with and I'd recorded that demo and I sent it to you sort of with the view that we would redo everything. But I remember you saying that you, you quite like the vibe off the demo, um, particularly the vocals. Like I just did them in my garage at home mm. um, really kind of offhandedly. And um, I had sort of planned for you to do a whole run of the song, just you recording vocals kind of on your own and just sing it however you want. And I remember you sent them back and they were like perfectly matched to my vocals. 
And I thought, oh, no, like <laughs> I didn't realize she was going to do it like this. But I ended up chopping it up and sort of doing this um, back and forth exchange. And it was really working. I hadn't actually planned for the song to sort of be back and forth like that. But I've always found your voice just so like it's got so much character. You just know who it is straight away. And I thought we really need to kind of feature this. And it, it just sounded so cool. Like, I know that you were sort of matching what I was doing, but um, it really had had its own vibe. It was really cool. Thank so. you. That's really nice. Where did you record it? I'm actually, like, right where I'm sitting right, oh, right. now <laughs> at, home. at home. I did go to the studio, a studio to record it. I don't know. I just, I got home with the sessions and I sat with them and I did, like, a comp of, of kind of all the best moments. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't love it. You know, I just felt like it could be better and... I I think it's something to do with the feeling of like wasting anybody else's time. Even with engineers that I know really well, they're kind of like, that's great. That's fine. We're done. And it's sort of in my head, I'm, I can definitely do that better and I want to do it better. And I don't feel confident to say to the person, like, actually, I want to do another few passes. And I, I mean, that's an extreme exaggeration. I, I definitely um, drill people into the ground <laughs> recording me yeah. over and over again. But I just felt like once I got the skill set of using Pro Tools myself and recording myself, I just felt this freedom of I can try things. I can um, I can just sit in an idea for a longer yeah. period of time. I can take 10 hours to do one verse if I want to or I can do it really quickly. It, it sort of removed that obstacle of the potential thought process around, oh, I don't want to um, be a burden on anybody else. Yeah, such a freedom in um, being able to reimagine how you want to sing something to and not have to communicate that. To say, hey, I'm just going to try this a bit differently um, and just sing this inflection slightly differently to just imagine it yourself and do it. Yeah, and I mean also just comping is a nightmare when it's um, – no, 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 the second, uh, no, go back one. Um, yeah. The yeah. purple one, the purple one, one with the, the long one. fishtail. Um. <laughs> then take the orange bit, put add it to the purple one. And you're just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to learn how to do this because this is brutal. <laughs> for those for those people that have no idea what comping is, it's uh, a process. So I think back in the day, singers used to just sing a whole take and, you know, but these days we're not as good as that. Uh, and what we do is we will record numerous takes and then we'll sort of, chop together the best pieces of, of those takes. Well, I mean, like, I would disagree with you there, Sam. I think we are good enough to, to, to do full takes. And I think some records are really great done like that. Yes. Like, I'm still a huge fan of the live record. I, I, um, I have, like, a few records sort of sitting, you know, like that I've recorded live with a band. And they're the ones I probably love the most sure, because yeah. there is something really magical about it being captured. But I think we don't do that as much when we're kind of almost like the process of writing is happening in the process of recording. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like those records where you get you get a band together. The song is completely kind of already decided upon. Everybody knows the song. You know the verses. You know the you know the structure. But often I think as songwriters, one of the exciting things about sort of recording it as you go and writing as you go is is doing doing it in that more, um, you know, Elliot Smith sort of way. You know, sure. you sort of do the drum yeah. thing and then you write to the drums and maybe try a few different bass lines. And, um, but, yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm just saying I think that no, totally. I totally yeah. think you, you as a singer, Sam, you, like you said, you recorded that in your garage and I don't know how many takes you do or how comped that was, but it sounded just like really off the cuff and amazing. And I, I think I recorded that 
maybe in just one or two takes, which I never do because I am like really particular about vocals. I think mainly because I know what I'm capable of um, just in terms of how I want to deliver a line and how I want it to feel. So I am like quite a fan of comping my own vocals because um, as you say, like I don't want to waste anyone's time when at the end of the day, like I know what I can do, I suppose. And Mm. uh, sometimes when it's live from start to finish, particularly I guess with our music and, and some of those songs can be a little tricky to sing, but um, yeah, I would just sort of do a take, a whole take of a song, and I know that there's moments where I just haven't expressed myself yep. in the way that I wanted to. Yeah. So I end up sort of going back and and doing it until I get it. But I am sort of learning as well to um, be a little more comfortable with uh, sort of just letting it be as well. That's something mm. I've really had to learn over the years mm. is is loving imperfection as well. Yeah, I think if imperfection happens in the right context, it's fine. Mm. I think like if the whole band's playing at the same time and you're singing, almost like doing a performance, I think it's easier to accept imperfections in those moments. It's harder to accept imperfections when you're by yourself and you're sort of like not really oh there's the drummer and you're feeling them and you're feeling the thing. It's it's you know the the context is sort of a little bit a little bit more strange and yeah. I can really relate to that. I I think over the years of singing I've I've started to accept that well I think also after, over years of listening to to music I some mm. of my favorite moments in songs are the moments where the, the singer's a bit flat yeah. or their yeah. voice breaks in a kind of odd way or, you know, those things you end up sort of, oh, I love that moment when that happens. and you- Yeah, that's just something you kind of, I think you have to uh, learn to be okay with if, you, if you're going to be a performer in, in the long run is just imperfections. Yeah. But- well, other other people might love it for that. Yeah, too. yeah. They love it for so. the performance and, yeah. the, and the character of it. Yeah. Um, Jules, I do want to, I want to talk about your most recent music that you, have been putting out and you've just announced your album. But uh, I do want to quickly go back and talk about uh, the very first uh, record that you and Angus put out together. Sure. I think I told you a little bit about this story at some point, but, you know, I, I want to paint the picture. So I was an impressionable uh, 18-year-old young man just out of school. And uh, I remember, I don't know why I was still going to the library at that age and hiring CDs <laughs> from the library. Like, I think it was because I didn't have a job and I, <laughs> I didn't, didn't know, know how else that. to get music. Yeah, yeah. My local library had, like, a pretty good selection of sort of, you know, very carefully curated CDs. And I used to go and hire them and i just have them in my car. And I remember I, I'd never heard of you guys before and I found a book like this in the library. I think I really liked the, um, the cover art and I, I hired it. And I think I rehired it for like six months or something and it just lived in my car. And I remember sort of driving around at night just like totally absorbing this record. And it, it became like really pivotal, I think, sort of pushing me in in the folk direction with my songwriting because I was still like kind of playing in a punk band at that point. But, um, you know, sort of not not secretly, like, there was like nothing embarrassing about it, <laughs> but I, I had a love for you know, singer-songwriters and, and that sort of folk style of, of writing music. And, uh, yeah, your album came along at a really um, sort of crossroad moment, I think, in, in the direction I wanted to take. And I feel like you guys were really sort of largely influential uh, with the folk revival that was kind of happening in Australia at that time. And I remember at, like, kind of festivals, all of a sudden girls were 
wearing flowers in their hair and like it was a real thing around that time do you do you think um well especially do you remember that period and would you say that you were kind of you know a part of that yeah i i think um the sounds that we were making i mean pre a book like this we had two eps and we had an ep called chocolates and cigarettes and a second EP called Heart Full of Wine. And that first EP had, you know, Mango Tree, Paper Aeroplane, Private Lawns, All of Me, like songs that are sort of still today fans of our music often want to hear or ask for from that very first Mm. EP. Chocolates and Cigarettes was like, it couldn't have been more folk. I mean, it was just so, so raw and it was two acoustic guitars, really like drums with brushes or no drums and a bass, mm-hmm. you know, like it was it was really it was really simple music. But when we first started, it was something that we knew people were enjoying in a live context, but we certainly didn't have like a feeling that it was going to be popular. You know, it was yeah. in Australia in particular, rock was the the flavor of what was happening. Yeah. It was um, bands like Powderfinger and Grinspoon and um and and you know, I I love those bands. I I think that I was a huge fan of Big Day Out and yep. I, I really enjoyed listening to that music, but it wasn't wasn't what I wanted to write. So we moved to London and we found that we had a lot more success over there. We got a record deal and um, the success of London fed back here a little bit, you know. It was like we ended up with a really good deal back in Australia and I think, you know, we started to get played on um, Triple J and, and I think our sound was kind of pretty different Mm. at the time and I think as you know like you said as the years went on like a book like this um I think it did get its way into the folk scene and and there were other bands you know starting to do that as well at the same time but for sure I feel like we were we were at the start of that movement in Australian music I think the rest of the world was doing it bands like um you know Ben Harper and yeah they were sort of in inspirations for us and even yeah the, the Mumford guys coming up yeah. as well yeah, yeah the Mumford guys were sort of um on the rise and bands in Australia that were pre um what we were doing that we were inspired by were like the beautiful girls do you remember those guys yeah 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 <laughs> yeah and the waves at all yeah and the waves I mean that was sort of like the folk scene was it was there and we were watching those bands at Pete's Ridge Festival and um the Woodford Folk Festival and it was an exciting kind of thing to be a part of. Yeah, well, I remember listening to yeah bands like Beautiful Girls and thinking at, you know, the age I was thinking, oh, this is like adult contemporary music. I quite like it, but <laughs> maybe I'm embarrassed to admit it. But mm. when you guys came along, like maybe at, at a time where the generation was sort of growing into that kind of music and I don't know, it seemed to be adopted far more broadly and and maybe because Triple J were, were picking up music like that as well at the time. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like you guys were sort of at the forefront of that. I mean, while you say that you were influenced by these bands before, you're like, um, I think you guys really took it to the next level. I mean, you guys were headlining all the festivals and sort of um, bringing particularly, yeah, folk music like kind of back to the masses, even though it was always there there was a whole stream of bands like, and I'd say that we were included in that group that were sort of directly influenced by what you guys were doing. I mean, that's really like um, a lovely compliment. And, but I, I guess it, for us, it was, it was such a long journey. I mean, it still is going, but um, you know, by the time we were, like you said, headlining festivals, that was our, 
our second record together and that was good six and a half years into touring you know we we put out down the way and that was when we had a lot of success and a lot of um you know we we got number one in the hottest 100 and and that was when it felt like oh this has really been embraced you know like the music is something that um we can really survive from and we had been at that point like living in a share house in london and really slogging it out across europe for um, most of that time and australia really embraced us and the world with with big jet plane and that record and and that was um that was for us it was a really lovely period of time but it was also like it it definitely didn't feel like we were at the forefront felt like we've been at this for forever Has a beer. Oh no, we've we've had a drink spill of some kind. It's actually a natural wine. Oh, <laughs> do you need a, a moment to? Uh... It's okay. I, I mean, I'm not disappointed about the spill. I'm disappointed about the fact that there isn't a wine. But um, I will text my fella and get him to bring me one in. Yeah, I was going to say, click your fingers and the waiter can come. <laughs> going back to you guys living in London and slogging it out in Europe, I was just laughing because I. I feel like that's a really good description of early touring in Europe for any band. How did you find that, those years of slogging it out? I mean, I have really fond memories of it and I think I often try and do glass half full repainting of the past. I mean, I remember loving like driving the splitter vans and being exhausted and playing a festival in the north of Scotland and then having to get to the south of England by the next day and just (laughs) taking it in turns and, you know, getting there being really grimy in kind of an hour before your set time and getting up on stage hungover and and tired and playing and we had a cool little crew, you know. The guy who I told you about, my first big love, he had joined the band and he was playing drums and we were, um, you know, we were back in love and we had a dear friend as a bass player and our manager was also a really good friend. And and so we travelled together in this sort of like 600-pound Tarago with um, one of the windows had been smashed out in a robbery and <laughs> was was it in Amsterdam by any chance no it was in Nottingham in England oh yeah dodgy place very dodgy so yeah we kind of I don't know we just we made it work and it was fun and for sure it, it's like the slogging part was the when you start out and you are playing in front of 25 people mm-hmm. and you're getting paid you know 40 pounds for the night and you don't really have enough money to get petrol or it there's a lot of like stress as well and you know you're going around with the mailing list saying do you want to be on our mailing (laughs) list (laughs) hoping that next time you come to nottingham maybe 60 people will be there yeah and um maybe the next time 150 i mean i'll never forget we played in birmingham we must have played birmingham like more than any other place in england <laughs> and we just it was like the most incremental shifts of success we played to 25 people then we played to 35 and then we played to 65 and it was like i think we only ever got to probably like 400 and it was it was just so slow <laughs> it was just we'd keep going back to birmingham we hated birmingham we Who were keeps just like, us in birmingham <laughs> well 
Well, there was just this lovely guy there who ran a place called the Glee Club and mm-hmm. he was just so into music and he loved our music and he really was so supportive and you know, we didn't absolutely love going to the city, but we just loved him and we loved the club and so we kept playing and but we were, you know, we had so much fun. We were also really into experimenting. We our sound checks were always writing new songs. We were Yeah, cool. We used our sound checks to write and then often we'd write a song in sound check and play it that night at the gig. And so we learn a lot of our sort of our showmanship or our craft of yeah. being on stage in those early days. Like yeah. a residency sort of feeling. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I have a notoriously bad memory, but I do remember the first European tour pretty well because uh, everything had such a shine to it. You know, we were playing venues and visiting cities that none of us had seen before. Every moment was fun. Mm. Hauling all our own gear, the big SVT cabs up the spiral staircases, (laughs) you know, lighting packages, wheeling those huge road cases along the cobbled streets of Brussels, you know, all that stuff was just so good because, uh, you know, it was, it was the first time we were doing it all and mm. everything felt so fresh. But those second and third tours, you know, the repetition of driving the same roads, playing a lot of the same venues, and like you said, this small incremental growth in crowd size starts to play in your mind a bit. And, you know, as, as well as all the great stuff, there can sometimes be a sense of wondering when things are going to change. I think that's I think that's totally reasonable. I mean, I think I I can definitely recall really difficult experiences, but it is tough um, for bands starting out. And I think the toughness is also that it could be like that forever, you know. And mm. you have that feeling sometimes where you're working so hard, and it can feel like you know treading water or something, you know, just gig after gig after gig and and you know when you get messages or emails from friends who are having babies or family things and and you start to kind of get a sense of like oh I I don't know exactly what home is or Mm. where I belong or and and you know those feelings are challenging and and I certainly Angus and I always were good with reminding each other how lucky we were. You know, like when you get into a hole of being like, oh, touring's so hard and, you know, we've got it really tough. We don't really have a home. And you can get very sentimental and very dark very easily, I think. Mm. Um, you're already, I think, as an artist, your disposition is sort of, it caters to, to that way of thinking and existential crisis can be just around the corner. And we would make fun of each other if we ever complained too much, you know. Yeah. It was like, oh, poor us. We get to play music every single night. <laughs> we get to sing in front of people and, like, share our music. It's so hard yeah. for us. And yeah. and we, you know, we grew up with parents that worked their asses off. You know, they they didn't necessarily always do jobs that they liked doing. I mean, I, I sort of stopped telling the story of my mum, but she went from doing marine biology and then she did a whole bunch of other shitty things that she did just to kind of, stay afloat and Mm. um she used to get up I remember she worked in corporate for years and she was a number on a huge in a huge company and she'd wake up at 5 30 and you know get dressed up in corporate clothes that she couldn't really afford and and get the bus into the L90 from the northern beaches of Sydney into the city and it would be a two-hour transit stopping at every stop and she'd get in there she'd work until seven she'd get home at nine she'd have a glass of wine and fall asleep and then wake up and do it every day and she did that so we could do all of this stuff she gave us mm. our first thirty thousand dollars to print our first eps oh, and we had role models that 
were kind of they showed us that hard work is important and having that work ethic and to really appreciate how lucky you are that you even know what you want to do Mm. and that you're doing it yeah i think uh when when you are having a difficult time on tour every now and then like a show comes along that sort of reminds you of why you do it I, i think of that first tour dave in europe and we were really kind of slogging it out at some of those venues but I, I remember we'd booked a venue in Amsterdam that, like, much to our surprise, I mean, we were playing venues that were, like, you know, 100, 200 cap everywhere we went and not necessarily feeling them. But uh, the Amsterdam show sold out for some reason and we had no idea that people even knew who we were there. And they moved the show um, to the Paradiso, which oh, we... Oh, I love that venue. Man, it's... Has has become one of our like all time favorite venues, but at the time we hadn't actually um, heard of the venue, so we pulled into Amsterdam. You know, sort of everyone was tired. I think um, sort of getting a bit weary, and and we sort of walked into this venue and realized how huge it was, and um, you know everyone was sort of like, "Why are we playing here?" You know, like we, there's no way that we're going to fill this venue. Like, what have they what have they done? <laughs> and I remember like we almost sold the show out and it was that show I think was is one collectively one of our favorite shows we've ever done like we just were mm. so happy to be there and um it's one of those rare shows that we all came off feeling like just electric from from playing music and the thrill of playing music which you sometimes forget when you're just doing it every night and we got, you know, it felt like a five-minute applause or something like that. I, I don't know how long it actually was. But, <laughs> yeah, I just I remember that show so well. I remember, like, being totally renewed for everything that we'd been through. Mm. Like, that one show. And that's all I remember, really, of that tour was that one show. And it made everything worth it. Mm. I can imagine the applause would have been five minutes. Like, that's such a... A nostalgic memory for us of going to Amsterdam is just the crowds and the way that they appreciate you. And yep. it's um, almost the applause is like there's been a drought of music <laughs> for a year, and it's the first concert that they've come to see. Mm. And that's the applause is that loud and goes for that long that you think, were we really that good? Like, what, what's happening here? It just it took my breath away. I always think they feed off as well your surprise. You know, mm. like there's this thing that with some crowds when you're like, you're so taken aback by their their joyous appreciation of, of what you've offered that they see you kind of almost like, huh? Like what's going on? Yeah. And they just get louder and louder. And like, I feel like every human, what a nice thing that they could all feel just for one moment to go out on a stage <laughs> and have a couple of thousand people just cheering you, you know, like what that would feel like yeah. for a person yeah. just to, to know how nice that feels yeah. to be appreciated like that. Man, so good. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I, I want to go back to the most recent music that you put out and you've just announced your third album, 60 Summers, mm-hmm. and you've released three songs from that, the most recent being Dance. And I watched the video. I could not believe that Danny Glover and Susan Sarandon were in that video. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I still can't believe it. I, I'm very lucky to, to work and collaborate with a dear friend of mine who directed it, Jesse Hill. So, Jesse is one of those people that... She's just um, a really big believer in like having a vision and going for it. And yeah. the idea for this was always to um, to tell this 
particular story, we wanted to show the feeling of falling in love, you know, in your wiser years. And we sort of were talking about who would be ideal. And of course, um, we had talked about Danny Glover and we thought <laughs> he's just like phenomenal. And, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums was a good moment so of good. Like, seeing him mm. sort of in a suit looking like absolutely just gorgeous and... You know, we like you guys with your record, you send songs to people and you sort of go, well, we'll see what comes back. Yeah. You know, some some yeah. things are possible and some things you kind of go, it's, you know, 90% probably going to be a no. And we just sort of thought it's going to be a no. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we, we sort of dream big and we, we see what we can do. And um, he loved the treatment and he, he loved the song and Man. he wanted to, talk, wanted to talk to Jesse. Yeah, so they got in a call. And they had a really amazing conversation and just got on really well and talked about all sorts of stuff about music. And he's a really like an activist and very political. And yeah, and they were sort of just chatting. And at the end of the call, he said, so who who am I going to, who's the lady I'm going to be going on this date with, yeah. you know? And she said, oh, well, who would you, you know, who would you dream about going on a date with, you know, in, in, in real life? Like, who would you love to just go out on a date? And, and he just said, Hands down, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, she was like, yes, of course. I mean, yeah, we talked about Susan. But again, you know, we talked about Susan. We yeah, did, yeah. We didn't ever dream that either of those guys would be um, a possibility. And Danny knows Susan from doing stuff like uh, political rallies together. Yeah, and of course. Yeah. Jesse sent Susan the, the treatment the next day with the song and she also liked it. And <laughs> they got on a call and... Yeah, it was one of those strange moments in your life where just things happened and... It's such an amazing video, yeah. I feel I was just watching the other night, like I had Lethal Weapon on and then last night we watched uh, Rocky Horror for Halloween. So good. And um, yeah, all of a sudden <laughs> these two like Hollywood royalties pop up in your music video. I thought it was so amazing <laughs> because I think not just that song but, you know, your first single um, you did Break and then Unreal and I think like... All of the visual elements for this album are so well thought out and very um, very specific, I think, to a particular vision that you have in mind. And I wanted to ask you about the importance of, um, I think, gathering the right creative people around you because that's one thing that we've learned um, over the years is uh, very much not compromising on the creative vision that you have for something and uh, really trying to gather people that are just going to enhance your vision, I suppose. Yeah, I, I really, I feel really strongly about creating a visual that represents the music in a in the right way. Because I think if you don't present the music in a way that resonates with you as like beauty or truth or you know artistically something that you could stand behind, I think that it can really throw people when it comes to hearing the music mm. and. Um, the guy who's made all of the single artwork and who made the artwork for the album, Philippe Coustique, he's an um, artist from Spain. I mean, he's just this incredible surrealist dreamer and beautiful human. And mm. I've been into his work since Jesse showed me his work. And just the idea of collaborating with him was a dream. It was just like following him on his path as an artist and then hearing back from him and him saying, oh, he actually likes likes my music and and would love to work together and then flying to Spain and, and meeting him and working together. And we become each other's muses. And, and I think 
that's for me what it's all about. Mm. I, I think at the end of the day, a record's a great thing and it's an amazing thing and it's a record of a moment in time where you've written these songs, but it's the process of making it. It's the people you meet along the way. It's the love that you feel for those people. And then after the record's out, it's playing those songs with other humans that you also continue to connect with and mm. with the audience. It's sort of like that's, I don't know, it feels like the only reason to be making art at all. Yeah, really well put. Yeah. You worked with Annie Clark uh, on the new album and who else? Thomas Bartlett. Thomas Bartlett. He, he and Annie produced the record with me. For those of you who don't know, Annie Clark is, I guess, well known as St. Vincent. What was that like working with her? I mean, I miss her so much. <laughs> I miss both of them. I remember the first day she came into the studio as the producer, you know, and it was like she was just a force. She yeah. was just so clear about her role and so helpful straight away. Just sat down and we played through all of the songs. She was making notes as she went and sort of like just knew what the record was going to be in a way, yeah. you know, like just – this one's really close. Okay, this one needs a, a lot of work. This one needs to kind of, we need to change the vibe on this. And yeah, it was amazing. She's just the warmest, kindest, most intelligent um, musical genius. She's kind of like reminded me in some ways of working with Rick where she would just call on some like really obscure reference and go to the engineer um, pull up a beat that sounds like this band yeah. from this record <laughs> in 1992, yeah. you know, their release and blow. And I'm just thinking like, what is she talking about? I've never heard of this band. And it's some like obscure band from just outside of London that had one record that was like an amazing record. And she'd pull up the beat from that and then that would be the foundation of like, let's go with this vibe for this song. And, yeah. and that was, yeah, I mean, one of the many moments of just – um, Annie Clark's genius. It was it was really inspiring. Yeah, man, she's so great. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that record she did with David Byrne, but it yeah, is so she, cool. Like the brass record. She's just everything she does is really exciting. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's an exciting artist to watch and to listen to. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing the record. And I know I know you love uh, traveling, so I'm sure this year has been tough to not do much of that, but. Um, I know you love France in particular. I saw you, uh, you'd posted recently about uh, missing being in Paris. And uh, I think you were posting something about the Hotel Amour. And uh, mm-hmm. I've only ever walked past it, but I've, I've seen it. I, like I've seen the neon sign out front. And uh, the whole like Montmartre area is, is really cool. I really love Paris, but I just posted I miss Paris for World Tourism Day because that was the only footage I had on hand for the <laughs> social media. You know, like I love Hotel Amour and I love Paris and I would absolutely move there in a heartbeat, but um, I love everywhere. You sure, know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I think like Hotel Amour is iconic for us in our memory. Yeah. Because it was where we used to always go when we played shows in Paris. We'd go there for dinners and after parties or um, when Angus and I did our last solo records, that was the place where we sort of randomly, because Angus and I, when we do our solo projects, we don't really talk very much, Mm -hmm. you know, like we don't chat on the phone or keep in touch. We just sort of, you know, good luck and do your thing and see you next time you know and that was very much what was happening it would have been months since we'd spoken I didn't know what he was doing I didn't know where he was (laughs) he didn't know what I was doing or where I was Mm. and I was sitting at Hotel Amour with my band on tour 
And we were having a birthday celebration for one of the band members and in walks Angus and the band and Rob <laughs> and Maddie and he's there doing a promo run and we were just like, hi. <laughs> like, you know, that was a really nice moment. Yep. And so I'm very fond of that that hotel in Paris. You had a fun time last time we were there, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. What uh, did you do, Dave? Well, I, uh, you hear mixed stories about some cities, but Paris is one of those places that some people are in love with it and have had great experiences and other people say, oh, no, it's just a dirty city. So uh, I think it was our second time there, Sam. Yeah. And we actually had a bit of time to walk walk around and discover a bit for ourselves. So I was really hungry to uh, make up my mind about Paris and see what it was all about. Because as you know, especially on tour, on a tight schedule, you don't get to see much of the city you're in some some days it's just get out of the tour van or the bus you see the inside mm. of the venue you go out you get some dinner at the closest restaurant you can and then you're back for the show um but this is a beautiful sunny afternoon in paris and um i walked uh, a few blocks up to the uh sacre coeur is mm-hmm. it the it's like the the church with the big steps that go up both sides and I was enamored by everything I was seeing. You know, I just, my eyes, <laughs> I must have had like the <laughs> widest eyes. And um, anyway, these these blokes who were uh, obviously picked up that I wasn't from the area. Um, <laughs> I got swindled. Oh, how did you get swindled? <laughs> um, these guys were putting wristbands on people. Um, you don't have to pay us. You don't have to pay us. You know, just they're like bracelets, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, little bracelets just made out of you know three bit, bits of string. And I wasn't um, blind to the scam. I knew something was happening. But what caught me was how persistent they were. And a lot of people were walking up, you know, around where I was. And I, am I the only person who's getting stopped here? <laughs> and I was trying to push past. No, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Not interested. And the moment I paused, there was, you know, three or four of them and they cornered me up against the balustrade and um, they forced it onto my wrist. Like they actually held, one guy held my wrist and the, one of the other guys, there was nothing I could do. And it, um, <laughs> then they asked for money and it became <laughs> less of a swindling and more of a, a, robbery. a kind of mugging situation. <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, this is broad daylight. Is anyone going to help me out here? And anyway, it is it is funny to look back on it now, but um, I was really rattled. I think it affected my... Your um, perception of Paris. I was probably 10 pounds down, I think, after that. It's not too bad. And they, they said, we know you've got more. We know you've got more. I said, no, actually... I'm a musician. <laughs> I'm a musician, mate. That's all the money I have. That's what you just have to say. I play music. This was, this was for my damn dinner. <laughs> But uh, it it hasn't shaken my perception of Paris. You'll be pleased to know. First of all, I'm really sorry that happened. That's like (laughs) really shitty. And I've also been mugged in Paris. So I can relate. But I as well still am super fond of the city. I think it's never a good experience being robbed. It really rattles you. Yeah. And you feel like angry at yourself for letting yourself be in that situation well it plays on that part of you that feels really guilty about the fact that people are struggling and that that's what they have to do to survive and i think the nature of being a human is like you want to 
you want to do the right thing and you don't want to just dismiss somebody who's saying, oh, can I have a hand or, hey, I gave you the bracelet and like give us some money for it. You think, oh, mm-hmm. well, like I guess you did give me the bracelet and maybe I should, but I'm also being completely taken advantage of. And so there's all these these mixed emotions that make you feel really confused. Yeah. Yeah. Julia, I love hearing about like your stories, obviously, because we haven't spoken face to face before, but I think a lot of people, as Sam was saying before, a lot of people would see you and hear your music in the context of uh, being a duo and singing with Angus. So hearing your experiences, even your traveling experiences, it's painting this uh, better picture of you as an individual, which I'm really enjoying. Um, In saying that, going back to when you were playing with Angus and that period in your lives when you felt like the band had run its course, Mm. what led you to that feeling and that decision to part ways? I think probably similar to where we're both at now. Um, When we started writing music, we didn't write with the intention of being a duo, with this idea that we would tour together and live a life together that was so connected and Mm. intrinsic. We just didn't have that kind of relationship. A lot of people, I think, project onto us this idea of like, oh, they're so close and they, you know, and we are by the nature of having spent so much time together, Mm. we have become close, but... Not codependent in... Well, yeah, but also just some people who are brother and sister or sisters or best friends come up to us and say, oh, it's, you know, we want to do what you've done and, like, we really, like, love each other and we have this vision and it's like we we didn't have that. Mm. You know, we we sort of fell into it in a way. We, we needed to play open mic nights and we knew that it would sound better if I sang backing harmonies for Angus and he sang backing harmonies for me and we had our own songs and we had our own identity and we had our own dreams and we thought we can help each other out and it was also just easier to go to open mic nights together and do the set for Angus and then you know eventually the set for me and then it ended up being easier to do two songs of his and then two songs of mine in the same set and and it started to feel like, oh, this is kind of working, you know, like something is happening here. And we still were selling our demos separately. Yeah. You know, it was Julia Stone and Angus Stone. And we would sort of, after we'd done our intermingled set, we would stand separately in the room and people would come up to either one of us and say, can I buy a CD? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we'd sort of be like, how much did you sell? You know, yeah. like that was the feeling. It was we were both doing our own business and our own um, music and it was our manager who came on board who suggested that we call ourselves something together and we were sort of resistant to the idea. I think Angus had been offered a record deal at this point as a solo artist and then they saw me play with him and they said, oh, well, we could maybe sign both of you but separately and... And, you know, it was all a bit clunky. We just sort of like, oh, what is this? Like, what what are we going to do? And and our manager said, I think it really works, the two of you together. And we were just sort of, okay, well, let's put like a few of your songs on an EP and a few of my songs on an EP and we'll, we'll call ourselves our names. Yeah. See what happens. And that was Chocolates and Cigarettes. And that was the three songs of Angus's and the three songs of mine recorded at different sessions. We put them on the EP and... And then we got our first record deal off Chocolates and Cigarettes in London, which gave us enough money to move to London. So all of a sudden we're living in London and we're playing shows together with Chocolates and Cigarettes as the thing we're selling at the end of shows. And and so it goes, you know, and then another door opens. and, and, And we felt like six years or seven years into it, maybe we want to do our own thing like we did at the beginning. Mm. This has been great, but 
there's still a part of us that we didn't ever really get to do to fully see through our vision as independent artists. And I think that it was really important for us to have creative autonomy. And together we found a really amazing middle ground where it was like, I think that's what's special about Angus and Julia world is that it's about two people that are very different meeting in the middle Mm. and making a sound that suits both of us together. And that's a hard thing to do, but we found that, because we had voices that worked well together in harmony because we're siblings, but there were all these other things that we wanted to explore sonically and lyrically that didn't work together. So there were all these other songs that sat on the sidelines and I think we both got frustrated because touring together also meant we knew, we started to realise you put out an album and two years later you're still touring that album. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were kind of like, what, six songs each on an album? And we write probably, you know, 30 songs a year. It's just, it felt claustrophobic and yeah. um, creatively kind of stagnant. So, yeah, we just sort of thought, okay, let's do side projects. And Angus and Julia will be our main thing, but we'll do our solo records. And that was how it started. And I think as we sort of built out solo worlds, I think they've started to become to become more where we want to go mm, yeah. as artists. We we love Angus and Julia and we love, uh, obviously we really love each other. We just really feel that there is something really exciting about revealing who we both really are separately from each other. Yeah. It's funny to think about now, but I know how much you guys have toured over the years and I've often wondered how, uh, how do you survive it? I, I know maybe that's a weird question, but... Do you thrive on tour or Mm. is your energy being sapped day by day? Like how do you get through that? Sometimes better than others. I I think over the years the thing that I found really healthy for me or that's worked for me is that I sort of know that touring's going to be touring. Mm. So the way that I navigated having balance was that I would finish a tour and I would be pretty wiped out and pretty sort of like, okay, that was a whirlwind experience. And then I would take myself on like a meditation retreat or something that was really the opposite end of the spectrum. And wow, okay. And maybe that's also a little bit an indicator of my personality. I, I, I think I do really um, swing in extremes. I can celebrate and dance all night. And I can also sit in meditation for 10 hours in Vipassana and not talk for 10 days and mm. not look at anybody and... And I really enjoy it. I mean, some people just think that sounds like the most horrendous thing that you can ever think of to go and isolate yourself. But I found Vipassana really healing. The first three days are quite intense and the noises and the sounds of your mind looping around mm. and um, playing back memories and and songs and thoughts and feelings that are really hard to feel. And then day four, you sort of start to get a sense of like, oh, okay, I, I, I can be calm and I can be still and... And that would then generate a lifestyle following Vipassana that would play out for four to six months and I could take that into the next tour and and then, you know, life would start to shift back into the more other extreme. Yeah, like okay. the pendulum starts to swing back the other way and mm. late nights and sleeping all day and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and never meditating and yeah. never doing yoga and um, and not caring, you know, and then... I'd swing back yeah. and swing. And, and I'm not saying this as advice to anybody. I don't think this is a particularly <laughs> healthy way to live, but it worked for me yeah. and it has worked for me over the years. Sure. With the spiritual side of your life, is there a link 
between that and your, your inspiration for writing and music? I mean, I think even before I, um, I started becoming interested in meditation seriously, and again, this is complete transparency. I'm not like fully committed to a path or mm. I'm just really interested. Yeah. I find it to be really helpful and I, I think it's self-investigation has really worked for me and the sort of internal struggles I've had in my life and challenges that have come up for me. I think music and songwriting, and maybe this goes back to my childhood, when music was in the house, my parents... They're both really remarkable people, but they weren't right for each other. So growing up, there was a lot of volatility in our house. Mm. I don't blame them for anything that happened, but they were really young and they didn't have a lot of money and they had three kids and they really struggled to communicate in a way that was healthy. So we witnessed a lot of pain and I don't think that's like an uncommon story. I, I just think from my perspective, I... Felt like when music happened, there was a bit of relief from that. Mm -hmm. When my dad's band rehearsed, they were having fun. You know, it was like the rest of the time, the rest of the day didn't feel fun. It felt stressful and painful. Um, and seeing my parents in pain was, as a child, something really challenging. And I think, you know, we all felt responsible somehow. It was our fault that they were struggling. And music was something that when my mum would sing, you know, when she would sing around the house, it felt like she was happy. And my association to music became something really positive and mm. it felt like a place of stillness. And And so when I went through my own, um, my own experience of like, oh, humans hurt each other and they really can be unkind and we don't know how to love properly, myself included. And that's really painful, a painful reality. You have a fantasy growing up that some, you know, some romantic idea that everything will get fixed one day, mm, everything yeah. will feel okay and everybody will be happy and the world will be this amazing love festival. And I think your first real heartbreak, whatever that is, whether, it, you know, you're realizing your parents are really actually deeply unhappy or mm. realizing that you're deeply unhappy. Um, I don't know. I, I guess music became this thing in the in that moment for me where i felt relief and i felt stillness and i wanted to write because i that night when i wrote the first song when i was alone in argentina in a stranger's house and i woke up sweating and having night terrors and feeling like oh i just wish somebody was here with me that that loved me and mm. and singing about that loneliness and singing about that fear and that was like a comfort you know the the sound of my own voice and and the guitar was a comfort and to um write those words felt comforting to me and again it was like a stillness within a chaotic stream of thought so i think somehow that experience then when i started meditating felt similar it felt like a similar experience and mm. i i think music and art can be that you know it doesn't have to be meditation or a specific spiritual path i think if you find something like that you feel connected to that brings peace that is a sort of meditation and some people find it through cooking or gardening or dancing or painting or conversation you know um but for me it's it's sort of been yeah mostly writing and writing by myself you know yeah it's so cool i love hearing you talk about like how you make sense of yourself through writing. I was reading this Albert Einstein quote today because he was obviously a huge fan of music 
and he said, if I were not a physicist, I would probably be a musician. I often think in music. I live my daydreams in music. I see my life in terms of music. And it just made sense to me that our magnetism towards music is this feeling of like we understand ourselves more. Yeah, I, I, I think something came to my mind when you were just saying that thing about Albert Einstein. I was thinking all forms of art, when you do it, it's like you're paying tribute to yourself in creating beauty, you know, like your life is art, you know, your whole life and the way you live it. It's this one opportunity as we know it, you know, like whatever you believe in, it's like, I'm so um, envious of people who have, the, who have a, an extraordinary sense of faith in, in afterlives or reincarnation. I mean, I think all those ideas are phenomenal and wonderful, but I, as far as I feel and I get a sense of what I know is that my experience that I will remember is in this form and in this body and in this life. And you have this finite period on the planet and we don't know exactly how long that will be, but it's going to be relatively short, even if it's a long life. And having that knowledge that it's just this piece, you know, this this moment lived and then many come after you and many have come before, it seems like the only way to pay tribute and honour to that experience is to turn it into a piece of art, mm, you know, in yeah. every day. And I'm certainly not at a place where I feel like I'm doing that all the time, but that's the sort of dream is that you're living like you're always painting and singing and dancing. And I love that idea that he's, his life was music. It's just, that's so beautiful, you know, that your life is a song and this emotional journey that it has ups and it has downs. And, you know, and I think that's what we love as well about going to concerts or theater and you as the audience, when you're really drawn into it, you're taken on a micro journey of life, you know, just you you feel the pain and the, the heartbreak and then you feel the togetherness and the connection and you feel the tragedy and the loss and the grief. And then you feel the kind of uplifting spirit of understanding of what, what that represents. And, we're all doing it in our lives. We're all doing it all the time. There's not one person on the planet that you, if you really engage with, doesn't have a story to tell about their own experience of those things. Mm, yeah. Hey, Jules, it's been so good to chat to you. Thanks for being so, like, so candid and, mm. and thoughtful in all your responses. Like, you've just given us a lot of yourself and we genuinely appreciate it. Mm. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's so nice talking to you both and seeing you both really like properly <laughs> yeah you too thanks so much Jules no worries my pleasure you two are legends we'll see you soon bye